So, so here we are in the beginning of a six-week sermon series on generosity. And so we welcome you here today. Many of you will be studying these texts in your life groups and unpacking them further in those groups. Uh, but today what we're going to be doing is dealing with this great little passage from Luke chapter 18, 9 to 17. So if you have your Bibles, it'd be great to turn in them, uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, if you have your phones, your tablets, whatever it may be. So when I say the word generosity or being generous, typically you're going to think money. Money, right? Yeah, the preacher's trying to separate me from my hard-earned money, right? Six-week series, that'll take us through Advent. I'll just not show up for church next six weeks. You'll see me Advent 1, right? Because he's talking about money. And you'd be right in some ways. Uh, generosity does have to do with giving back a portion of our hard-earned money back to God to uh, grow his kingdom. But it has to do with much more than that. Uh, a Christian life of generosity is a life lived with a natural outflowing of generosity into the lives of others. It's a natural fruit of living life under God's grace in Christ. And so today is responding to God's radical grace in community. And we're going to, um, point number one, write this down if you're taking notes. Generosity in the Bible involves all aspects of a Christian's life. Generosity is not a thing that we do, but a natural fruit that flows forth from the life of grace. A natural fruit that flows forth from the life of grace. And there are three aspects we want to cover real quickly. One is the source of a generous life. What's the source? Um, number two, the sign that you're living generously. And then number three, the key to radical generosity. So we've got the source, the sign, and the key. We'll start with the source. Look at verse 10. Look at the major players in this parable that Jesus taught. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. When you think of tax collection, what, what do you think about? You know, IRS, yeah. Audits, yeah, bad stuff. Uh, the government taking 40% of my income, yeah, bad stuff. Now multiply that by 100. And you will, see, you will feel what it felt like to have a tax collector in your town in Jesus' day. They were no good, rotten, dirty scoundrels. Everybody hated them. Remember, the Holy Land was occupied by Rome. Rome was an empire. And to make sure you maintain an empire, you got to have big bucks, right? How did you get the big bucks to maintain the empire? Well, through aggressive taxation of all your conquered peoples. So you could send all the money back to Rome. They hired local Jewish men who knew their village very well in order to execute the taxation. You can see why they're hated, right? You can see. But it gets much worse than that. The taxes were enormous. And not only that, they were taken at spear point. So you had Roman officers there putting a spear in your face and extorting money from you, and the Jewish friend that you grew up with is doing the dirty business. That's why they're hated. Worse yet, he made his income by skimming the taxes above and beyond what Rome required. So they're sending all this money back to a pagan, no-good empire, and he's taking money for himself from my wallet. It doesn't get much worse than that. Think of ethnic traitor, uh, jihadist, Slave trafficker, Nazi collaborator, 
Whatever you can conjure up in your mind, the worst person you can imagine, that's the tax collector. Abundantly wealthy, incredibly greedy, hated by their kinsmen. Those three things. But there are two guys in the story, right? Look at verse 10. Two men went up to pray that day. One was a Pharisee. Now, when we think of Pharisees, because of what Jesus said about them, we think bad, 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 bad people, right? Not so in Jesus' day. They would have thought, good, good, good. These guys are great. This is Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley all wrapped up together. They were reformers. It was the Sadducees and the priests who were in it for the money. These people were righteous and holy. They wanted to bring the people back to God's word and knowledge of God's law. Not bad, 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 but good, good, good. So the Pharisee represented a reform movement. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week, the Pharisee says. I give a tithe of all that I get. They're good. These are things that Christians should be doing. You and I should be doing. Fasting and praying, giving 10% of all that we have back to the glory of God. But Jesus is setting the stage, isn't he? He's got the bat back here. He sees the ball clearly, and he's about to hit it out of the park. What do we have so far? One person, a Pharisee, who is known for his religious devotion and charity. He's a philanthropist and a pillar of his community. On this side, we got a tax collector known for greed and oppression, a dirty, rotten scoundrel. What does Jesus do? He pierces the soul and looks at the heart. Isn't that typical of God, looking at the heart? Remember 1 Samuel chapter 16? Uh, you got the next king, and Samuel's supposed to anoint that king. And so he goes to Jesse. And Jesse's parading all of his sons by Samuel to see which one's going to be anointed. And then this, this strapping, good-looking Jewish guy who's so smart and strong comes forward. His name's Eliab. And Samuel's like, that's the dude. That's the next king of Israel. Remember what God said? God said, Samuel, don't look on the appearance, the height or the stature of this man. I've rejected this one. For the Lord sees not as man sees the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. The heart. And that, let's look at the heart today. Look at verse 11. Look at the Pharisee's heart. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Those extortioners and unjust, those adulterers. Or even like this tax collector over here. Man, I fast twice a day, twice a week, and I give a tithe of all that I get. You hear that prayer? God, I thank you. But he's not thanking God at all, is he? He's going through his religious resume. All the things that he's done. He's basically saying, God, you should be thankful for me. I am the most interesting man in the world. And notice his posture. He stood up rather arrogantly and said these things about himself that's where his heart was look at this verse 13 let's look at the tax collector's heart but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven man he's bowed down he's humble and he beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner one guy stands up and talks about his own good works the other guy begs for god's mercy lord help me help me Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa, my fault, my fault, my fault. Be merciful. You see, the Pharisee says, Lord, you should be grateful for me. The tax collector says, Lord, I'm begging for your mercy. Please help me. Something's happening in that tax collector's life. Something's changing in that guy's heart. And, and, and he's becoming 
aware of his need for grace and for God's forgiveness in his life. And we see another tax collector in the very next chapter doing the same thing, this time a real-life guy. You remember from Sunday school years ago, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Next chapter, this wee little man is looking for salvation, and he finds Jesus, and he becomes a follower. And what does he do? His heart becomes automatically generous. He says, man, I'm a goat, and I'm going to give half of all that I have to the poor because I love Jesus now. He said, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to repay that fourfold because I love Jesus now. He was touched by grace, and his life was changed. He became radically generous. So point number one today, the source of radical generosity is not in your purse. The source is your heart, is your heart. You can be a Pharisee, give 10% all that you have, and still be stingy towards God and others. It's a matter of the heart. Or you can be a tax collector, greedy, rich, swindler all of your life, and yet the moment you meet Jesus Christ and his amazing grace, your heart can be open to God and others in a way that you never thought possible. Radical generosity is in the heart, friends. Number two, the sign. The sign of a radically generous heart is this. If you give to those who do not benefit you directly, you give to those who do not benefit you directly. Verses 15 and 16. Let's illustrate it. Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them, to bless them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them saying, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. These disciples, they probably tithed, probably prayed, probably fasted. They did all the good stuff that looks like generosity. But they weren't being generous with their time and their energy here. How many of us are like those disciples? Oh yeah, we'll write a check, buy some shoes for those people in Honduras. As long as you don't ask me to go there and actually touch them and be with them. Or yeah, yeah, we'll bring some clothes and drop them off from the, the food distribution so that Margie's closet will be, will be blessed. But Lord, don't ask me to go and deal with those scoundrels on Saturday morning. Don't ask me to deal with them personally. Isn't that what the disciples are saying? You know, we've, we're following Jesus. You know, we've got better things to do. He's got this kingdom that he's building. We're, we're doing big time stuff here. Don't, don't confuse what you're doing with these children with the bigger stuff. Get those little brats out of here. We've got business to do, and they're not part of it. Isn't that what they're saying? The mark of a truly, radically generous person is when you give in time and ministry to those who cannot personally benefit you. Children were inconsequential in that day, but Jesus said, I love them. They're important to me. If they're important to Jesus, the outcast should be important to us, right? So how are we doing so far? I know you you pay me money as a priest to step on some toes. Have I stepped on your toes yet? (laughs) I know I'm stepping on my own toes, okay? I sometimes don't have a radically generous heart with, with my finances or my time and energy. And certainly for those who don't benefit me personally. So what's the key? The key to living a generous life is living in response to God's amazing grace and love in Jesus Christ. Living a life in response to his amazing grace and love in Jesus Christ for all that he's done for us. You see, one man, a Pharisee, is saying, you should be thankful for me, Lord. The other guy says, 
Be merciful to me, a sinner. In verse 13. Um, now, what, two things before we close. One is he came humbly before the Lord. Remember? And Jesus says in verse 14, the man, this man went home justified rather than the other. For he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So he comes to the Lord humbly. That's part number one. That's part of the key. But number two is that word mercy. That word mercy is a technical Greek word, holostrion, holostrion, and it means propitiation for our sins. It's the same word that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 2, verse 17. He says this, Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, holostrion, to give mercy for the sins of his people. That's the same Old Testament term that talks about the mercy seat of God on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you would take the blood of an unblemished animal, sacrificed to God's glory, you would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat that God's anger and wrath might be diverted from his people, that they could be re- re- uh, forgiven, redeemed, and restored to God's good graces. You think maybe that's pointing us to Jesus? His blood sprinkled for us on the mercy seat of God on the cross of Calvary. Do you think maybe that's what this guy is crying out for? Lord, be hilostrion, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you imagine that the rest of his life is lived in thanksgiving because of God's grace, mercifully poured out on his behalf? Yes, he came humbly. But I imagine if he really understands the gospel, how profound it is and how much he's been loved, Don't you imagine that 10% would seem nothing to him after this moment? Man, I I can't pay God enough for all that he's done for me. Do you think that maybe spending time with the least and the last and the lost and the outcast and everybody that the world says doesn't matter, do you think that would be a burden anymore? Because he matters. Once God says you matter, everybody else matters. And they've got dignity. And they are people for whom Jesus died. So that's where radical generosity starts. It's a heart matter. The sign of radical generosity, are you reaching out to others who won't necessarily benefit you personally? The key to radical generosity is living in response to God's holostrion, God's mercy, God's propitiation, 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 I'm sorry, propitiation for our sins. Are you living in response to that? If you'll do those three things, you'll become a much more radically generous person. And guess what? When we become radically generous, then we become salt and light to the world around us. Man, the world doesn't know Holostrion. They they don't know what it's like to be incredibly generous. And then we become an amazing force for God in our culture. We begin to shape it through our great generosity. To God be the glory, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.